You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Mike McGinnis is the author of Fat Man and Little Boys. His short stories have been published in the Best American Short Stories, Unstuck, The Collagist, and others. His new novel is A Drowning Practice. Thank you for joining me, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. You know, this book is about a dream and about dreams in general. I'd like you to know, do you yourself um write down your dreams and keep a dream journal that is no you know and it's something that i've thought about a little bit as i've gotten older because when i was a kid i would have really interesting really disturbing dreams that would stick with me for a long time and i can still remember some of them very vividly and they feel to me like where a lot of my sort of like narrative aesthetic instincts and ideas came from. And at some point I stopped remembering my dreams by and large. So I I can still describe vividly like um, when I was a kid uh, dreaming about a world where everybody lived in these waist deep holes. And maybe you had a hole that you were trapped with somebody else in. And maybe you were on your own in your in your hole, but it was just a hole in the ground. And I guess they fed you with like a fishing rod or something like these things stick with me. and and then uh, for for a while in um, around the the end of my high school toward the uh, beginning of my college uh, career, I had this recurring dream where everybody would get together in a house in a party, and they would tell me how awful I was, and that was the that was like the dream that took over and that I had over and over and over again, and then. And then I kind of stopped and like every now and then one stays with me after I wake up, but it's a rare thing. And I'm probably, I worry a little bit about like, if I, if I have been dependent on them for, for my writing, then it might be that I'm running low on a resource and I need to start <laughs> keeping a journal so I can, I can renew the well. Why don't you tell us, this is such a, this- the novel has such an interesting concept at its core and it's laid out in, in the opening pages so it's not a spoiler why don't uh-huh. you tell us that just the idea behind the novel and was that did that begin the novel or did that come partway through the writing of the novel yeah so the the premise is that at the beginning of the book actually a little bit before the book begins everyone has had a dream that the world is going to end in November. And they don't know quite why or how, but because literally everyone in the world had some version of this dream, they believe that it is probably true. Most people think the world is going to end. And so the the book follows a mother who was once a a successful-ish novelist and her daughter who wants to write her first book before the world ends. The daughter is 13. And um, they are running away from their uh, ex-husband slash father, who is uh, sort of a weirdo spy and who wants them to come live with him before the world ends. And um, the way that I had the idea for this book is that I tried for 
years to write a book after after my first one that was published, Fat Man and Little Boy. And I even did write one uh, that is never going to be published because it was about 220,000 words, uh, which is... That's scary. <laughs> it's too many. For too an many editor. <laughs> yeah. No, people did not... Uh, they were not uh, enthused about that. So, like, I kept trying... I wrote several more things that didn't... I kept not finishing them, and I kept getting more and more depressed and worried that I was never going to finish anything again. And I was having a conversation with my partner, Tracy, in our in our basement uh, one day. And I and I was, like, telling her... I, I was telling him, I just feel like giving up. Um... And then I said, well, what if I wrote a, a book about a girl who wants to write a book before the world ends because her mom wrote one? And then I asked myself how they know the world is ending. And the answer I immediately came up with for some reason is a dream told them. And that really was like that that initial instinct basically decided everything that that happened in the book. And I don't know where it came from beyond um I, I always enjoy a premise that is a little bit audacious in its stupidity and <laughs> the idea that the that the world is ending and that we learn this from a dream is one of those things that like I mean I think once you hear somebody say like I wrote a, a whole book about this and I think it worked out okay like you're, you're kind of curious but if somebody told you in advance that they were going to do that you'd say I don't know why <laughs> like I don't know if that's going to work Mike. You know one of the things I, I really enjoyed about this book was the the way that you have created a future that is also the present. This is one of the things I think about science fiction. Even if it's set in the 25th century, in the 35th century, in the 55th century, it's being written right now or yeah. in the past. And all it's going to be about is either what happened in the past or what's happening right now. I, everything else it, the author makes up. And, and I think you do a really good job at writing a book that's set in a present that doesn't quite exist, but feels like it exists. You use your uh, science fictional premise to enable you to open up and discuss all the things that are happening right now that were you know, unlikely, unable, or unwilling to talk about. Yeah, it's funny you say that because um, one of the one of the things about this book that like um, most people will probably never pick up on because I intentionally sort of hit it is that in my imagination it does take place like twenty years from now or something, right? Like if you were to ask me what the date is, I would choose something like that. But it doesn't feel that way at all, very intentionally, because like except for the fact that the world is ending, nothing has changed, right? Like all the technology is basically the same technology we have now. There's nothing in the book that happens that you can't picture happening with with things that we have now. Um, McDonald's is still around. You know, grocery stores still work the same way. The jobs that people do are still the same. And it's because what I wanted to talk about, I I think, in terms of like the global um, themes of the book was that sense of exhaustion, the feeling that, you know, people have been talking about this increasingly in, in my circles anyway, the fact that like if you look back at culture from 20 years ago right now, it's pretty it's pretty legible, right? Like it's pretty much the same 
in the U.S. as it, as it is now. And things that were made then, in some cases, they look like cheaper or less persuasive in some way. Like, you know, special effects have gotten better. Um, you know, costumes have gotten fancier. Music production has changed a little bit. But it's all kind of the same thing. And we don't have eras in the, like the difference between the 70s, the 80s and the 90s, right? Like there's a there's a, a sense of progression. There's a sense of change. And um, you can sort of guess from uh, from what people are wearing in a movie set in those times, which time it's supposed to be. And right now, if you if you try to dress somebody up so that it's uh, 2010 in a film versus 2020, I don't know what you do. Um, like I genuinely, I look the same as I did back then. I, I, it just feels as if there's a real sense of cultural exhaustion right now. And I think that that's misleading in some ways, but, um, that feeling of the, the future being sort of endlessly just the present is definitely one thing that I was thinking about a lot while I was writing this. That's a really great uh, idea because I think we are all just exhausted and trying to imagine even the end of today because who knows t tomorrow something else totally insane may happen mm -hmm. well, it's, and so yet it's just like yesterday <laughs> <laughs> so I think that you really capture that but what's what you do really well too is to make it interesting to us to to infect your reader with this kind of ennui that is different from our experience today and to give us a new view of what today looks like and I think in a sense that dreams as the theme of this book it, that that becomes important because when you read a book it is like you're experiencing somebody else's dream and that's kind of the what the reading experience is that the author is like the director but you is the screenwriter but you as a reader are the director producer and you're seeing all the actors and putting it all in place and that's what you do in a dream yeah, um, when when I read as a kid, I I experienced it in a in a very literally, very much like the way you're describing, where I would I would work much harder than I do now to visualize what I was reading about, and I would cast like friends of mine as characters in the book, uh, so that I sort of felt like I was hanging out with my friends as I was reading. And I would really enjoy the process of of trying to create my version of the space that was imagined by the book um, as I was reading. And I think that as I've gotten older, I've both like that is happening a little bit more routinely, subconsciously. I'm not really framing it cinematically in my mind as much as I did. The the experience of living in someone else's idea, someone else's story is there's there's something really powerful about the I'm trying to think of how to how to describe this in like remotely technical terms. Like when when you're reading a book, there's a void underlying the whole thing that is like really powerful and really fundamental to the experience, right? There's the fact that you know that as much as you're trying to as a reader imagine something visual to imagine the space um, it, it 
truly doesn't exist. And like to imagine one second of a story in that way requires uh, adding so many things that the that the writer couldn't possibly have put there that certainly aren't on the page. And there's an intensity and an intimacy to that experience and to deciding when you're going to put the effort into um, really stopping to contemplate that and when you're going to let it happen uh, without thinking about it. Um, that is, for me, it's sort of the fundamental thing, but it's so hazy. And that's what I'm that's what I'm encountering now as I like try to describe this experience that is like so important to me in reading and writing um is that uh i'm trying to describe haze <laughs> trying to describe that void and it's and it's a really dream. hard yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's like trying to describe a dream yeah. because it, it as you try to grab at it it shifts away from you it runs away right you know one of the this book too directly from page one contemplates the apocalypse but it's as something for much of the book at least that is you know, again, you're grabbing at it's like a dream. We don't know exactly what it is. We think it's going to be this. And I think this gets to a really interesting idea. Long ago, I read a book by Stanislaw Lem, which was called The Perfect Vacuum. And in it, he gave uh, perfect reviews of imaginary books. One of the books was called Pericalypsis. And the premise of this book was that the apocalypse has already come to pass, like the apogee and the perigee, only it went unnoticed in the general haste. <laughs> <laughs> now, for this writer, the apocalypse was the increase in the number of books being written. There were so many books being written that the seven books that could save the world could no more be found than would you could find seven specific grains of sand in the Sahara. They were lost beneath a strata of garbage. That said, I think that we all feel to a certain extent, even now, that the apocalypse has come and gone, and we might have missed it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now we're living in a post-apocalyptic world, and I think you captured that aura really perfectly with this premise, and, and also with the book where, you know, the rules are not just, it's not like the the uh, post-apocalypse where the rules are thrown down and now everybody gets to turn into some kind of their own version of a superhero. It's more like the rules are coming sort of unraveled or realizing how arbitrary all this stuff is. And well, why bother to go into work? I can work at home. Everything that we used to know is coming apart, but not quickly, slowly, day by day. Day. And that's what you capture in this book so well with Lyd Mott's journey. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, it's been so. I wrote this. the The principal drafting was actually done before um, Donald Trump was elected. Um, before before we knew that he was really going to be the thing that he was. And then, so certainly, it was written before uh, we had any idea about COVID, right? Um, and we. Uh, it went out on submission, actually, the time it went out twice, but the time that it sold was in, I believe, April of 2020. So everybody had just started quarantining and um, and and we I didn't think it was going to be over in, in six weeks. But that was sort of the prevailing uh, opinion about how this was going to work. Right. Was that we would all go away for a month and then we would resume life as it as it had been before. And obviously we're still uh, not 
quite there. And I, I think in many ways we won't get there. But there's been so going out on, on submission that way was really stressful because, you know, editors would would write back and they'd be like, you know, this seems pretty good, but like I can't I can't read it right now. It's just too much. It's too much for me to handle. And I and I think that um, I, I felt a lot of sympathy for that. But I also I have felt like weirdly ghoulishly vindicated by how this particular apocalypse has looked because it's like you're saying like we were presented with this opportunity right i think we did miss the apocalypse because we had this chance to really renegotiate how we were going to structure our lives and it felt like there was an opportunity for solidarity and labor around that it felt like we could really change our working conditions. It felt like we could renegotiate our deal with the government. And to a, to a small extent, we did these things, right? Like uh, people in the U.S. got some checks that we wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Um, there, uh, you know, people in uh, white collar jobs like mine um, work uh, from home more often than we used to. Um, but like fundamentally, it's all in service of keeping things running basically the way that they were running before, right? There was that meme on Twitter, nature is healing. We 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 considered letting that happen, and then we said no. Like <laughs> actually, nothing will change. I think in more like the talking head, same as it ever was. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's so hard, and it's so disappointing, and it's so frustrating that we missed that chance and it feels like we're we're missing it every day but i think it does speak to one of the things that i think the the book wants to argue which is that like when the end of the world comes it's going to like you're saying it won't be we all find out that we're superheroes and we get to like completely throw away the rules and and start everything over in the way that we want it's gonna just be a new grind that is very <laughs> similar to the old grind like we're going to be dying in our in our shelters and we're going to be, you know, doing Zoom meetings with our bosses where we play icebreaker office games. <laughs> and, then, and then the flesh will fall off our bones, you know, like that's how it's going to go. And that's how it's going. Yeah, well, I'm hoping that the flesh will not fall off my bones during this conversation. On the, <laughs> if it does, I apologize for the video. Um <laughs> Uh, this book begins, I think, really well with um, Mott. She's 13. She's in school, and everybody in the class, she's kind of the teacher, and this is a, gets to some really great character work you do, but the scene of the kids in the class reading their version of what they think the apocalypse will be is chilling, it's hilarious, and it's disturbing all at once. And I think that you that's one of the powers of this kind of fiction is that you can write something that's very funny, very scary, and just really weird all at once. So talk about creating those little, you know, the storylets. One of the things I like about this book is it's like a, a long scroll where there are like little stories kind of, nudged off to the side that work by themselves but also contribute to the bigger whole you know act as pixels in the final picture 
Yeah, so I think that when you are writing about something that is theoretically sort of a global concern, one of the big questions that you have to ask yourself is, how are you going to work in the experiences and the lives of as, as many different people as you're able uh, without, especially in a book that wants to stay fairly close to its protagonists, you're going to get, like you're kind of saying, like a, a pretty partial view of these other people, right? They're going to be like uh, folks that you glimpse in the airport as you're you're walking through your your terminal to wherever you're taking off, right? Like, uh, I forget I forget who said this, but it, it really has stuck with me that like walking through an airport is like, um, is like seeing a thousand people uh, be born and die every five minutes or so because these people come into your life that you're never going to see again and you just get this like little glimpse of them and then they're and then they're gone and it's happening so rapidly um and i you know i think i wanted a little bit of that feeling with the book where you know trying to find opportunities to show a little moment in the life of a character and um you know try to imply here's Here's how things are going to be for them as they as they move toward the end of their lives, and uh, here here's the here's the way that they've chosen to spend the time that they have, right? Because that's the most meaningful contrast to the the protagonists is they're all in this situation together of only having so much time, and everyone is having to to make a decision about what they're going to do with it, um, and so I think that. I think that having such a stark, dramatic situation, everyone in this scene is going to be dead in 10 months or whatever, um, really, it means that everything they do can be invested with meaning pretty quickly. It's a good, uh, you know, convenient shorthand. It's a way to, <laughs> to bring some energy to a scene, like, you know, putting a like putting a gun in somebody's hand automatically energizes the scene. Um, and But also... Um, it's inherently sort of funny in the way that like everyone at an airport is funny, right? Because you don't know everything about them. You don't know what like got them to this point. You don't know why they feel so strongly about the things that they feel so strongly about. All you see is this person just dashing across the food court to get to where they need to be or almost missing their flight or, you know, having Boy, a really loud me. conversation. <laughs> yeah. And it and we we look silly when we're seen that way. So like, um, I think I think that that's where a lot of the 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 humor comes from is that like it's such a grave scenario and it's such a hard situation to be in, and nothing anyone can do in that context is going to be adequate to the moment, right? Nothing's going to feel right. But that's also that's not different from life, you know. <laughs> like I have more than a year, probably, but it's not like I think about the, you know, thirty or forty years I've got, and I think like, you know, I'm gonna kill it. I'm doing a great job. <laughs> you know, um, or you have these. We start with Lid Mott. They're really interesting characters, um, and what strikes you immediately, and I obviously, is that in a sense they've almost changed places. Uh, Mott is very capable. See, she, at first, you're thinking, well, she's the teacher. Wait a second. It's, is that the mother? No, 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 no. It's not. And I think you do a good job of creating Mott as a very competent, hyper-competent, uh, you know, pre-teenager, like many of them actually are. And, and Lid is, is uh, this 
very childlike almost in in her sensibility so and also she's a, a novelist and i think <laughs> that you've informed her with some of your perspective of being a novelist so talk about creating a character who's a novelist and yet childlike yeah so one of the things that that I do a lot in my work, it seems like, is inversions of relationships like that, especially like who should be responsible and who should have power in a scene and who does have the responsibility and power in a scene. And there's a lot of different reasons for that, right? Like, so my first book, Fat Man and Little Boy, is about uh, the two atom bombs uh, that got dropped on Japan. They get uh, reincarnated as people after they explode. And Little Boy was dropped first. So he reincarnates as a he, he looks like a little boy when he's born, but he's several days older than Fat Man, who is born looking like a fully grown man. And so they spend the entire book negotiating who should actually be the older brother and who should be in charge. And of course, the joke there is that the difference between them is several days. So it's like they're both they're both children, right? They're, they both don't know the things they need to know to to make good decisions. Um, but it is, you know. I can't help but resent little boy for saying, because I look like a child, you have to be in charge and take care of me. Right. And I feel like there is that, that arbitrariness in every relationship of power and responsibility between any two people, this feeling that like, well, because you've spent 20 more years on this earth, you have to give me guidance and support and resources because you've got it figured out. And I am a baby. And it's like, Everyone is helpless all the time, right? Like we're all, we all have this like desperate need for support from each other and we all need resources and love and, and help and guidance. And, um, you probably shouldn't make your 13 year old daughter, uh, take care of you that way. But like, no one should have to do any of the things that we're doing, right? No one should have to live this way. It's kind of my general feeling. Like, no one should have to live. It's sort of my general feeling. Um, and, like, and part of that, too, comes, like, honestly from, from like, you know, uh, experiences in my life that I, I'm not, like, super comfortable uh, talking about publicly. But there's definitely, like, I don't know, these are real family dynamics that, that get into people's lives and things, right? So that's... That's where a lot of that comes from. Uh, it's specifically in terms of, you know, the context of, of Lid being a novelist. Um, I think that, you know, I always get frustrated or disappointed or nervous when I see that a book is going to be about a writer. I'm very suspicious of that because it feels like you couldn't think of anything else. <laughs> but, you know, like you just, it's like somebody looked around the room and they saw themselves and they're like, well, I guess that's my protagonist because I'm the only person here. Um, and I, but I did it, you know, I, even though I hate it, I did it. And I think it was because I wanted to be honest about the fact that I did feel that exhaustion myself, right? The feeling of like, well, I don't have any better idea of what to do with my life than write books. I don't know that this is actually a good decision, right? Like, I don't know <laughs> that this is actually what I should be doing as a person on the earth. There's probably more important, better things to do, but I can't find them. And so I think I think Lid is born from that impulse of like this seems to be writing books, though it is trivial and, and pointless and doesn't help anyone. Also, the only best thing I can think of to do. And that I think that's where a lot of her helplessness comes from, is that she is like 
the embodiment of that feeling of exhaustion and like, what else could I possibly do? And she's also given up writing. So she's in, a, in an even worse place, um, which was at the time I was in a really deep depression and I wasn't going to give up writing, but I was starting to think about it in a way that um, would have shocked uh, anyone who'd ever known me up to that point that I would ever even consider that. You know, um, I think that for me too, th the presence of David is really, really well done. This is a man who is professes to be a spy and maybe has some evidence of actually doing that. But we, it's somewhat uncertain because as a person, you describe him as kind of, well, he's kind of a, like a, a hippie pothead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you do a great job of melding spy with hippie pothead. In terms of the plot of the book, the reasoning behind this it works out well. And I think one of the things you do do well, uh, just to, to speak of a future that may or may not exist, um, you you stick the landing for the book. <laughs> Let's tell the readers right now. This is a, this is a, a wonderful wonderful reading experience, up to and including the last words. So, but. Uh, so talk about creating David as these kind of conflicts and we want to like him, but no, <laughs> not <laughs> yeah. quite. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, um, he's introduced in a way that is definitely meant to foreground what is charming about him. And so that you do understand, um, you know, Lid is exactly, she, she's a very formidable protagonist. She's a, she's a, she's a strong person strong-willed at least um at least in certain ways <laughs> she's, she's got some some weaknesses too for sure but she um she chose to be with this man and it is important that you have some sense of why a person would make that choice but fundamentally he is awful to be around and and he is a really corrosive person and so like a lot of the ideas that go into making him who he is is like i I agree with a lot of the things that he says he believes, right? Like I am kind of a hippie myself. I am sort of a, on, on some level, my instincts are free love, hedonism, everybody go out there, you know, get high, uh, you know, meet some friends, uh, screw around, see what happens. And like, that, that's a that's a way of life that I guess could work for a person. But if you look at the actual history of like how that works out, especially for folks that are not um, the, uh, you know, relatively privileged men that are often at the cores of those sorts of communities, it's not good. Um, and so, like, I kind of have to own up to the the really bad consequences and implications of ideas that are more or less things I, I sort of instinctively believe. Um, and like in my writing, generally speaking, uh, I try to make it so that anything I think is true, the worst, least dependable person in the book says them. Uh, so that, so that you're not, uh, you don't, you don't just uh, feel like you got to go along with me on them. Um, so that's where a lot of his ideas come from. And that's where a lot of like the marriage of the, um, the hippie aesthetic with the authoritarian reality uh, comes from. And I think that this is, this is a thing that is, especially for like, for uh, men who are like myself, sort of like left leaning and like to think of ourselves as, in some way 
um, immune to the charms of authoritarianism. Um, that's not that's not true. Like if you look at the way that people in leftist communities, the way that men in leftist communities and organizations conduct themselves, uh, the authoritarianism is always like three seconds from the surface, or it just is the surface, right? Like this this desire to control and manipulate and use people, and so. I think part of the reason that he is that way too is my desire to say, you know, to again to to own that fact and examine it and think about ways ways of of dealing with it. Um, he was also though he was written like the the very very original impulse there was um, if you look at the stories and you know popular culture about the apocalypse, uh, you know your TV shows and movies, your your Walking Dead's, Twenty Eight Days Later. Um, things like that, they usually at some point uh, reduce to a story about how much manliness is too much manliness. Um, there comes a point where like a father will show up. Um, the protagonist is usually a father who's who's manly and capable of protecting people and he's strong, but he's a little bit soft. and so we can we can get together with him. we can we can get along with him. And then the villain is someone who is just a fascist, right? Someone who is a father who is just cruel, just hard just too much manliness. And um, and I think that that is kind of, for the reasons I've just described, a really silly and really convenient way of thinking about these things ideologically and, and otherwise. And so I wanted to depict a father who was the villain, and it is because of how he chooses to be a father and a husband, but it's not just that he is a right winger. It's not just that he is a, a conservative uh, father figure. It's that he he's doing bad things to people. Yeah, you know, what one of the things I really loved was there's a great image in here where David's talking about all the invisible threads that connect us. And as I was reading this, I'm thinking, wow, this is powerful and and seems kind of cool. And Pretty. And then at the very end, you throw in that connect us all like fishing lines for trout. Yeah. <laughs> Which I just thought, that is a great line. And <laughs> it, 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 you have a lot of fun with that it kind of thing by like leading us up to one thing and then just slowly submerging it and inverting it till we're thinking, oh my God, I'm actually underwater and drowning. And I never knew it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, I had thought about that line in a little bit, but you're right. That's exactly the line that sort of describes the dynamic for David and from like my relationship to him as a, as a writer. And like when I, when I read it later is, I like that metaphor too, right? I like the invisible threads connecting us. But what he's saying in that scene is, and therefore you now need to sleep with me. And and like and and it's really gross and and creepy, but that is I mean, that's how so many people interact with each other, is it's we're creating metaphors and and relationships and and all these things that fundamentally add up to and now I get to extract something from you because of the the way that we've set this relationship up. And, and this carries through to to the the journey that that Lyd and Mott make that they leave their house they're trying to get away from David so that he can't find them. And they journey through America ending up in, in a, a college in, in Houston is I think yeah. Yes. And, and 
um, as they go, what's really interesting is they go to various places and everybody is engaged in whatever it is they used to do theater <laughs> in that <laughs> <laughs> it's commerce theater, it, it, it's presentation theater, whatever the heck they used to do. They now realize that all the things they used to do are theater because everything has the point has come unplugged at the very end and there's there's nothing to carry that commerce that security or whatever it is they used to do through past where they live they they know that that it will come to an end and i think that's a really interesting perception to undo all of society and and present it all as just theater yeah i think i think you're describing exactly what happens i hadn't thought of it in terms of theater exactly but you're right like you know obviously that makes you think about like the phrase security theater that i think we became familiar with after 9 11 right the idea that like you do things that don't actually make anyone safer but there's a performance of doing a thing that makes people safer and that's important for for various reasons and like it isn't it isn't right and then we had uh you know, I forget what the phrase was that I saw used, but like public health theater, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Like when they go around and they disinfect your table after you leave. And like, if you were keeping up with the science of how COVID spreads, you knew a few months in that sanitizing the tables that people are eating at is like completely irrelevant. It has nothing to do with how it's transmitted. There, I've, I've heard about devices they, they would put in uh, like the gyms where kids would um, do wrestling practices, that, you know, in like schools that overnight they'd like irradiated or something like I didn't understand at all what was supposed to be happening. But none of it had any relationship to what would keep us safe. But it felt important that we were seen to be doing something that kept each other safe. And I, you know, there's a there's a. It's really easy to be contemptuous of that, and I and I am contemptuous of it. I think I'm communicating that now, um, but I also feel a lot of sympathy for it, and it does feel like an ethical obligation to do those things. And I feel that way about like people's like my day job and my my day to day life has a lot of everybody's does. You do things to be seen doing them and to create mm -hmm. the general fiction that this is all. Uh, accomplishing the thing that it's supposed to accomplish, but I can't imagine what else I would do, right? Like I, that really is the the thing that it comes down to is as as skeptical as I am that most of what I do and most of what anybody does in, from day to day accomplishes anything. I can't imagine not doing it. Well, you do a good job of like undoing or revealing what might be called bill paying theater. Sometimes people want to be paid in your book, and sometimes they don't, and it really doesn't matter. So. You, <laughs> I'm just hoping to get my chance at Bill Payne. <laughs> yes. You know, in a book like this where um, some somebody or everybody in your case has months to live, time becomes really important. And the perception of how we perceive time also becomes important. And we realize that it's the most important thing we have. And once we start thinking about this, um, it, it really unfolds. And in your book, I think it, you do a great job of like suggesting how memory is how we describe time in the past and like computers, we write to memory. And, and, and also dreams are, 
a kind of memory, a, a, you know, like a memory planted on, on top of radiation. <laughs> it grows up kind of <laughs> comes back kind of weird. And the yeah. other thing I think you do really well with this is create this sense. And I think we talked about this earlier, that what we're all experiencing now is a nostalgia for the present. And, you know, there's an old song by Carly Simon where she says, these are the good old days. And I think that's what, kind of what we're all trying to think is, okay, well, these are the good old days because tomorrow they might start a nuclear war. Yeah. And it is it is amazing. I mean, this is kind of going back to some some earlier things I said, but it is amazing to me how little I feel the specter of the nuclear war that we're currently living under, right? Like it is amazing to me how much the, this is the worst case scenario in many ways right now. We're in the, in the middle of, of living um, up. The only thing worse would be if, if the next logical thing happens, right? Like the only, the only way it could be worse is if it continues down this exact path. Um, and I don't, <laughs> I don't feel that from day to day. And like, I think part of that is the human brain doing what it's supposed to do, right? Like we're supposed to get used to things quickly. I say supposed to, as if, uh, I think God made us this way or whatever. I don't, but like, you know, it's, it is, it is good for us as a species that our brains have gotten comfortable with just saying, if anything happens three times, then now that's just life. And I've just accepted that as the cost of being alive, right? So if I wake up three days in a row and Russia's invaded Ukraine and they've put their nukes on high alert and and that's how things are, then that's how things are. And when they blow me up, that'll be how things are. Um, and it and it does, it's, it's strange to me how much that doesn't change my experience of this moment and how how much I am ultimately reduced to trying to engineer positive experiences for myself in the way that you're saying, right? Like for lack of a better idea, I uh, went out to eat with my partner uh, to celebrate the fact that the, the book is coming out soon. And we sort of made that little memory together. And, uh, you know, tonight I'll do something else that is designed to make me feel like I'm living the life I'm supposed to be living. And I'll, I'll just keep doing that. Um, and I don't know if it works. I like that idea that we'll do the the thing that we're designed to do. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. Now, at, at the end, or at least at one point in their journey, Mott and Lid end up at, at a college. And I think this is really interesting because college is seen as a place of transformation. You go in there and it literally is often transformative. But on the other hand, colleges are chameleonic they become what we need them to be and i think you capture both sides of that coin really well so talk about uh creating this uh pre and post-apocalyptic uh, college experience uh for 13 year old mott and also for lydia who has returned to her alma mater yeah the I think that the that was one of the last big elements that got put in. Um, I, the biggest challenge with this book was the middle, which in earlier drafts it tended to drag a little bit, and I 
moved some chunks, I cut some things, I added some things, and then I and I went through that process several times. And then I went back for a revision. And I don't remember what anybody said that led me to do this because like my agent did not ask me for this. And the editors, the editors that we were talking to didn't really ask me for this either. But I suddenly decided, okay, new subplot, they're going to college. And and they're gonna they're gonna meet a writing teacher. And I think that the reason that I I wanted to do that. Gosh, I mean, who knows what the original reason was, but the thing that makes the most sense to me now is that I wanted to give Mott the opportunity to have that kind of transformation, that kind of growing experience you're talking about. I wanted her to have nothing more important to do than working on her book and and learning how to be a writer. Um, but there is... I don't know. There's a there's a way in which going to school in that moment and a way in which investing the resources that we do in this kind of thing does feel like a, another example of what you're saying of like a, it's an act of nostalgia on the part of the people who are enforcing this. Right. The, the fact that Lid brings Mott there is genuinely designed to help Lid or help Mott live live her life as best she can. And it is an opportunity for Mott. But it's also an opportunity for Lid to regress and to not have to think about what she's doing with the rest of her life, right? To be able to focus on Mott um, in, a, in a familiar environment. And uh, so for me, the other reason that college is a, is a good thing to put here is that for me, it is an example of like the most surreal economic arrangement that there is in the world. Um, you know, I work at a university. I work in a, a university town. And this is a town that were it not for the university's placement here, there's not really much going on, right? I'm in I'm in Iowa City, which is in in eastern Iowa. And like if it if it weren't this, it'd be cows and pigs, I think. And that's fine. But like it wouldn't it wouldn't have the same cultural significance or the same material significance that it does. But because of there being a university here it's a place where like all this culture and all this capital gathers and we have all these educated people with all this knowledge and all these resources that they've gathered and so you know as a result the the unemployment rate here at the height of the recession back in you know like 2008 or whatever was like 4.2 percent right wow. <laughs> like, yeah like it is so much easier to get a job here than it is like anywhere in the country that it's it's just absurd. And it's because of all this money that that flows in here from all directions. And, you know, just like every university, the you know, the tuition goes up and up and it's it's just wilder and wilder. And so we are living in a really beautiful environment. I love this city. I love living here. Um, but it is made possible by absurdly excessive concentration of of wealth and resources. And so it's hard to feel entirely positive about that. Um, you know, this is a book about dreams, um, the dream that everyone has, and also the dreams the characters have. So I'd like you to talk about designing uh, the dreams of the characters to inform us of the characters as much as people are informed about their own characters by their own dreams and by when other people relate their dreams to them. You know, how, that tells us maybe something about you or maybe nothing about you. So I think it's an interesting, you know, writer's proposition how to get 
strike that balance. Yeah, you know, I said that I am always suspicious of and and like disappointed by books that are about writers and then I wrote one. And also I'm very suspicious about uh, stories about dreams. And the reason for that is like you're saying a story is a, a dream in a lot of ways. And um, so so we're talking about two layers of, of dream here when we talk about a, a story about a dream. And, you know, when when someone that you love wants to tell you about their dreams, it's one of the worst experiences that a person can have a lot of the time, right? Like, like I love my partner. We have great relationships. But when they want to tell me about what they dreamed about the like, the night before, I there is a part of me that ha- I have to really suppress the urge to just be like, could you not tell me about the random nonsense that came into your head last night that can't possibly have any significance, right? And, like, I don't – Maybe I'm a little bit of a monster, but I've heard other, a lot of other people say, like, I think that's a pretty common experience of somebody else trying to tell you their dreams, right? Um, but they, like, they do matter to us a lot. That's why we, that's why we want to tell each other about them. And there is, there is such an intense experience that is, like, like we were talking about earlier, it's so hard to capture and explain to anybody else that, like, the decent thing to do when your partner starts describing a dream to you is to, to smother that instinct to complain about it and instead listen closely and and try to be attentive and thoughtful and and really hear what they're sharing with you um and so putting that in a book is is risky and it's hard because it does i think it you're testing the reader's patience but it does also i think give them permission to have a different kind of relationship to the book and the things inside it to to experience it in a little bit more of a dreamy way that that gives the book a a different texture um and so i hope i hope readers experience it as liberating but i think the the most important thing about like putting a dream in a story is arranging the characters and the and the space and the like dramatic narrative context of of the story so that the dream means something to you when you're reading about it right um so like the dream is the premise but it is not the first thing that happens in the book it waits until i think like chapter three to be described because i needed you to know enough about the characters and what the dream significance would be to them that reading it didn't feel like you were just having nonsense described to you it felt like okay i understand why this matters to these characters and these people um and it, there are a few dream descriptions throughout i keep it pretty limited for these reasons but in each instance what i'm what i'm really trying to do is to set things up beforehand so that something dramatic can happen in the dream which is only possible if you understand the dramatic stakes of the dream and the images in it for the for the characters describing it. It, it struck me as you were speaking that uh, dreams serve a similar purpose to your fiction in that they allow one to just talk about the dream, which is about one thing, but also ha- relate to it since the dreams must come from your own actual real world experience in some way there there are a way for you to talk about things that you can't or wouldn't otherwise talk about them you can say oh yeah. i had this dream and i did this and this and this and and you might never ever in your life talk about this and this and this except when you talk about your dream 
Yeah, you know, it's one of my favorite examples of that, just because it leads to such funny social interactions is I feel like at this point, and I, I mean, I, this has probably been well established for a long time, but like basically everybody understands that having a dream about sleeping with someone does not necessarily mean you would like to sleep with them or that you're, you're, you're nursing um, an intense crush and you're going to leave your partner. And in fact, you can tell your partner um, generally, unless they're unless they're especially jealous, um, I dreamed about sleeping with this person. Isn't that weird? And like, and then you can have a good laugh about it. And if you're if you're close with that person, you can even tell them. Um, and in every instance, it, it's it's understood if you're with people that you trust and that trust you that this is a harmless thing that you're not proposing anything that you're not asking for anything that that no harm is being done here. And yet. It's kind of fun, right? Because you, <laughs> there's a there's a flirtation happening there, undeniably, right? There is there is a little bit of uh, social overture happening, and it's a way that is socially acceptable for us to um, to kind of flirt with people that we wouldn't otherwise feel comfortable flirting with, to have conversations ab- about about our feelings about each other that aren't about our feelings about each other. And that's the fun version. And then the unfun version is you can also, when you're talking about your your nightmares, like when I uh, had a dream a little while ago about a, uh, I had a dream that Tobias Funke from the show Arrested Development was a cannibal. And he, <laughs> hey. he was like ripping people's arms off on the subway and eating them. And I don't know what that's about, but it does, that dream has stuck with me for a long time. And it it must it must speak to something for for me as a result. So I do occasionally tell people about it. Um, you know, this is a book that has a, is very much about the apocalypse. When we say the apocalypse, I think most of us bring to mind you know nuclear Armageddon, maybe you know the the seas all rising until there's no place for us left to live, death by pollution, but. The end of the world, as as one of your child children point out at the very beginning of the book, might just mean something completely different that we can't understand or wrap our brains around now. What uh, science fiction writers sometimes call singularity, that point beyond which you are unable to make a reasonable prediction about what will happen. And I think that this book does a great job of, you know, working with that concept. Yeah, I think that when the world ends, it's not going to be the kind of it's not going to be a clean narrative ending uh, with with catharsis in the way that we want it to be. Right. Like it's really unlikely in the event that it is that kind of of really sharp, clean ending, because, say, everyone gets nuked and it really is thorough enough to kill us all. um, We won't be there to experience it. But if there's a if there's a version that we do get to experience at the end of the world, right? It's going to be, it it will necessarily be a transformation of life such that it becomes unrecognizable to us. That's the only thing that would count as an end of the world, um, if we're there to see it. We wouldn't call it the end of the world if we just changed the terms of our our living a little bit. Um, it's the end of the world if if we don't. If we can't imagine now, like you're saying, what it would be like to to live after that, and I I do think that's what's going to happen. However, it happens whenever it happens, is people will have to struggle 
and strive and relate to each other in ways that are incomprehensible to us now and that I hope remain incomprehensible to me. It won't be fun <laughs> and it won't be dramatic and it won't be, it won't even be interesting. It will just be what we have to do. Um, and so I, I wanted to talk about that. The new book by Mike McGinnis is Drowning Practice. Thank you for joining me, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.